So uh, welcome everybody to this, which is our second meeting in the third series of the Oxford Treasure Seminar. And I'm really excited today to be able to introduce Professor John Niemetz of the University of Virginia. John is a specialist in the tantric religions of Kashmir and hence he knows about the cultural background from out of which, according to, to Tibetan belief, Padmasambhava came to Tibet. Over the last few years, corresponding with John and his colleague, Ben Williams, has completely transformed my own understanding of the origins of the Nima tradition. And I strongly recommend that Tibetology begins an increased dialogue with scholars of Kashmiri Tantra. John Nimitz is Professor of Indian Religions and South Asian Studies in the Department of Religious Studies of the University of Virginia. He is the author of The Ubiquitous Shiva, Somananda Shiva Dristi and his Tantric Interlocutors, as well as a sequel volume two by the same title, both from Oxford University Press. A third volume in this series is on its way. John holds a PhD degree in South Asian Studies from the University of Pennsylvania, an MPhil in Classical Indian Religions from the University of Oxford, an MA in Religious Studies from the University of California at Santa Barbara, and a BA in Religion from the University of Rochester. He was a Fulbright Scholar in India in the 2002 to 2003 academic year and Directeur uh, d'études invitées at the École Pratique des Hautitudes, Paris, in the spring of 2016. His current research examines not only tantric philosophical works, but also the larger intellectual and cultural context of the Valley of Kashmir of the 9th to 12th centuries. And currently he's beginning a book on the study of religion and the place of historical and textual studies in the same. John, I'm very, very grateful you could talk to us today and uh, over to you. Well, thank you very much. Um, I just set a timer. No, this has been really a nice conversation and thank you for being in touch. And uh, it's really been a pleasure to get to know you and your work and to read your some of your, your essays. And um, I'm, a, I'm happy to share today. So I'll speak probably for 45 to 50 minutes. I do have a handout, which I will refer to, but not read in great detail. So thanks once again. Um, and I think the work uh, that we're doing here of linking our respective intellectual wor worlds can be vital. And it's tragically novel in that so many people, uh, there's a general lack of effort to do so. For few, if any, have taken it up in a sustained manner. This even though it's plainly evident that the historical and geographic areas of our interests, for me, the Kashmir Valley around the 10th to 12th centuries, with Sanskrit materials that were written or were circulated there at that time, it presents a notable historical circumstance and point of connection, where from my end, Hindu traditions of various kinds mixed and engaged extensively, not only with Indian Buddhism, but also with Tibetans in particular and other visitors from along the Silk Road network. So in the course of preparing this talk, I have found that the work involved in trying to connect these worlds gave me a sort of mixed feeling of seeing what is obvious and feeling that what I have to share with you is completely obvious on the one hand, and then on the other moments of new insight or revelation. So to share across sub-disciplines, I think, requires one not only to reiterate what is well known, um, as I'll do today, but also it can give occasion to see things in a new light. In the present instance, this this is precisely what preparing the comments I have here left me with. For while it's implicitly known that scholars of Shaiv, among scholars of Shaivism, that the teachers identified with the god Shiva were said to be incarnated on earth in order to initiate and teach worthy disciples, I also did not realize until preparing for today 
that the history of the term with which we often refer to these incarnated gods as gurus, the term siddha or siddhas in the plural, is complex and in fact has gone untraced in a changing history of use in the development of Indian religions. Uh, in fact, the term has to be traced to early Buddhism, I think, as well, and into Jainism. I wanted to just put a, in front of you, I think a lot of you will know this book that Paul Dundas is the Jains, and there's this symbol here, this arced circle here at the top, which is a symbol for that world where Siddhas go, where accomplished people go. It's called Siddha Shila, this land where people go, where they'll no longer be reborn from and live forever. And so this term Siddha has kind of two qualities to it. On the one hand, it refers to what Rob has been writing in his publications using the terms Alexis Sanderson uses, referring to the Avataraka Siddha, or the Siddha uh, incarnated on earth. We have this phenomenon of gurus who are trace their lineage and trace their very identity to Shiva, claiming to be Shiva incarnated on earth, and therefore authoritative in their teaching, and we have this in Shaiva Tantra, very common. But before that, we have the term Siddha referring to a kind of class of beings. And we see the term being used in various non-tantric uh, works in ways that I think are interesting and bleed into tantric works as well. And I wanted to show a bit of that in the course of the day. Um, okay, let's see. Uh, the first place I encountered all of this was with my dissertation work, and I wanted to I'll put the hand out one last time. I know it's redundant for most of us, but for one or two, it might not be. I've put it into the chat so you can download it for what that's worth. And then I'll share my screen here. Yes, this should be it. Yes, so the first place I encountered this idea of a Siddha incarnated in earth as a guru was with my dissertation and indeed the work I've done for my PhD. Uh, in, and then now two volumes of this translation of this text entitled Shiva Drishti, or vision or philosophical vision of you like, if you like, of Shiva written by this figure, Somananda. He's the founding author of this tradition uh, that culminates in the writings of Abhinavagupta. And this is a kind of schematic of the texts that we have that are present and lost along the way. And at the end of the Shiva Drishti, published in the Kashmir series of texts and studies, uh, and then also in manuscript sources, we have something that's a kind of autobiography of Swamananda. It's written in the first person. I personally don't think he wrote it for a variety of reasons we don't need to go into. And I've given it to you here with little uh, variant readings and that kind of thing and so on with the Sanskrit and a translation, again, which I won't read for reasons of time, except to point out to you in this bold and underline that we have this person who's said to be avatirna or crossed down into the world. And we have this lineage of his that ends with Somananda indeed, being called a Siddha or a perfected one. And we have Siddhas, plural, 14 of them in fact, coming down into the earth uh, to offer teachings and preserve the sacred secret teaching that's special. And this uh, translation with the corresponding bold and underlined I've given to you here as well. The point that I'm trying to make is at first, and I'll end with this kind of passage again uh, in the end of the hour, but the point I'm trying to make is that the history of this term is more complicated than I knew it to be. God incarnate on earth to teach? Yes, we have this all the time in Shaivism. 
But this notion of siddhas being some kind of being uh, uh, that is not an incarnate guru, we have this prehistory of the term as well. And I think we have to disambiguate those who are avatars or avatirna crossed down to the earth, siddhas, this creature or being that lives, in fact, we'll see between heaven and earth, and then avataraka siddhas, this kind of siddha embodied uh, that comes from this strain of Shaivism, certainly this krama tradition of the northern transmission of the Kala reform movement, the details about which of these little branches of Shaivism you can get in not this book, but in this book, the Alexis Sanderson first gave an article, Shaivism in the Tantric Traditions, in this, uh, uh, Hardy edited this volume, and he's updated his history there in several articles since, but you can get a general map of how he's understood these branches and divisions of Shaivism, mostly represented still, even still, in mostly unpublished manuscript sources. So we have a general term Siddha that I want to scout in pre-Tantric materials now, and then I'll show you some passages from the Tantric tra tradition. So I've mapped it out here with these items like this down through the handout. And I wanted to show you four places in the Mahabharata. There are others, but I just picked four. There are five or six that use this phrase Siddha Gandharva, Siddha Gandharva Sevita, that kind of thing. It scans well in shloka meter, and it appears over and over again. Um, let me go to my notes uh, and tell you the, about this passage. The first one is from the Aranyaka Parvan, where we have an explanation given by, I can't remember who it is, I'm sorry, to various sacred sites you can go to and gain rewards thereby. And one of them is said to be the source of the Sindhu, the source of the Indus River, which is worshipped by Siddhas and Gandharvas. These Siddhas and then these celestial musicians or these Gandharvas, another group, somewhat indeterminate. There should be more philology done to figure out their history as well. So you can see this term there. I want to give you a second one just to give you a sense of the frequency of this, right? Siddha Gandharva Sevita is the next one we have in the Udyoga Parvan of the Mahabharata. Again, maybe second century, this is quite early, probably even earlier than that. We have these passages in the Mahabharata referring to a place, in this case, a mountain that is full of special herbs that are useful for medicine, and it was frequented by Siddhas and Gandharvas. So we have that example as well in the Udyoga Parvan when they're trying to convince the Kauravas not to fight the Pandavas. A third example here we have from the Drona Parvan, this is one of the battle or war books of the Mahabharata, as I'm sure all of you will know. Um, Bhishma is being taken out of uh, commission and we have Drona fighting and we have this passage here that I've highlighted. So we have Deva Rishi Siddha Gandharvaha Sadhu Sadvitiya Pujayan. So they're saying Sadhu Sadhu, right? Bravo, bravo. Devas, Rishis, Siddhas and Gandharvas honored these two fighting. We have Karna fighting um, with Bhima here in this passage. You get the point. And then yet another one uh, that we have here, right? The worshiped, this, this person is being worshiped by Siddhas and Gandharvas, as well as by gods, as well as by Rishis. So we clearly have passages that are suggesting these Siddhas are kind of 
being, a special kind of being along the lines of in the lines of Gandharvas, Rishis, Devas, and, and so on. The reason that I had my mind on this passage, there are other places, I'm sure there are many, many other places, I haven't searched it completely. I'm sure there are many other places in the Mahabharata and elsewhere, certainly in Puranic literature as well, where Siddhas are mentioned in this kind of vein. But the reason I looked for Siddha and Gandharva in this compound is that I recalled out of memory a text that I edited and translated at Oxford for my MPhil and subsequently published I gave you the reference here in the footnote. Yeah, uh, called the Tridasha Dhamara Tantra. And this is a, a text we have in two patalas, the 81st and 82nd, but it reads and appears and presents almost like a truncated, complete tantra. And it starts with this uh, description uh, of this place where we have the Deva Deva Maheshvara, the god Shiva seating seated, excuse me, and it's described as Siddha Gandharva Pujita. And that line had stuck in my mind. And this is a text, tantric text, that's part of this Kaula Reformation. So it's even a later part of Shaiva Tantrism, somewhat later part of Shaiva Tantrism, using this kind of stock phrase that we certainly have from the Mahabharata and elsewhere, coming into a tantric scriptural work. We also, uh, See it in uh, the Tantra Sadbhava Tantra, as I've given you in this footnote, the same phrases there in the Tantra Loka. This is my longish way of coming around and saying, these Siddhas have a prehistory, a pre-tantric history. When we see the phrase, we're gonna have to think about what it possibly could mean uh, when we find it, even in tantric works, but because it seems evident to me that this Siddha Gandharva kind of compound we have is a stock phrase that's pre-tantric that's fed into tantric works as well. Now, I wanted to share a little bit more information about these siddhas that comes from non-tantric and pre-tantric works. And here I've given you two passages. I'm just checking the time so I don't speak too long. Uh, I've given you two passages here from the Yoga Sutra and its commentary by the famous Basha um, of Vyasa, who it's been argued is the same person as Patanjali. But here we have this uh, passage of Yoga Sutra 2.44. It says that if you do Svadhyaya, then you will get a connection. You'll make a connection with your Ishtadevata. But the commentary says that those who are, the person who is skilled in Svadhyaya, right, will have come into his vision, devas, rishis, and siddhas. So again, this looks like a class of being, yeah, that's similar to gods and rishis and so on. But the really clinching evidence that we have to absolutely think about this as a class of beings in its pre-tantric context is what we have in the Yoga Sutra and the Vibhutipada, this famous third uh, book of the Yoga Sutras, where the siddhas are mentioned in the sutra itself. There's the Siddha Darshana, but the commentary says this about the Siddhas, that they course in the, inter, uh, in the uh, intermediate realm between earth and heaven. And this is indeed where we see this kind of world of Siddhas. Maybe, I don't know, I have, this is what was new to me in preparing this by Rob's questioning. Maybe something from Jain tradition is feeding into epic and these kind of classical uh, uh, Sanskrit we could say Hindu texts. Yeah, I don't know. 
what the history is exactly, but clearly we're not talking in these earlier contexts about avatarika siddhas uh, or perfected God coming to earth, manifested on earth in the form of a perfected human being, which we have much of as we'll see shortly. There's an intermediate, intermediary phase in coming to this idea of a, a siddha that's a, an avatara, as we saw in that first passage I shared at the beginning of the talk uh, from that so-called autobiography of Somananda. By the way, one of the reasons I'm not sure Somananda wrote it is because there are places in the manuscripts where it's not included in the text. Okay, that's no big deal. But then there are manuscripts that include it and only it, but call it a vivriti, some kind of commentary. So it's a little bit funny in the manuscript transmission. The other thing about it is that it mentions the so-called local language. It uses a, a, uh, a non-Sanskritic word uh, to refer to Triambaka, this person who's from whom Somananda's line or through whom Somananda's line is said to have been manifested. And that reference to the vernacular doesn't feel like something Somananda would have done. It feels like something that would have happened after his time. But that's neither here nor there. I wanted to show you, and I won't read it, but I wanted to show you this passage here that comes from uh, this famous commentary on the Pashupata Sutra. The Pashupata this is what we sometimes call a proto-tantric work. It's not part of what we, uh, uh, no, is, was referred to as the mantra marga, the path of mantras, but by later Shaiva tantric traditions was referred to as the ati marga or the outer path or the extreme path. But these Pashupatas from second century on, and we know that this commentary was probably fifth, sixth century, this commentary of Kaundinya. And here we have the notion expressed of God coming to earth to teach, uh, descended to earth using this term, term avatirna, and this we have in this commentary on the Pashupata Sutras. This is a well-known passage, however, also quoted by Ben Williams, with whom I know Rob has been speaking, and um, as it happens, um, Ben and I work together, we read Sanskrit together on Skype or Zoom, um, and he came to Virginia last week and gave a lecture, in fact, so I just saw him in person about eight or nine days ago. But he says of this passage in his PhD dissertation regarding quotes, regarding the Pashupata-based ascetic traditions, there's evidence that Lakulisha identified in Kaunginya's sixth century commentary on the Pashupata sutras as Shiva descending into the Shaiva sanctuary of Kayavatarana and assuming the form of a Brahmin came to be venerated as the earliest and most revered foundational teacher of the tradition. And here we have, in other words, an early reference, perhaps in Shaivism, I think, so far I think in Shaivism, the earliest reference we have uh, to the notion of Shiva manifesting himself as a teacher in a human form. And the translation given here, also cited by uh, Ben Williams in his dissertation, is by uh, Minoru Hara, the great scholar who has this wonderful dissertation and then book. This is from the dissertation on the Pashupata tradition. Recently, there is a book that came out, uh, and I'll, then I'll come to the more properly uh, tantric material shortly. But recently, there's a book that came out by Elizabeth Cecil. I don't know if you can see with sharing the screen, also the cover of the book, uh, entitled Mapping the Pashupata Landscape, 
And uh, as it happens, I, I was just asked to and did publish a review of this book um, that's uh, in the Indo-Iranian Journal, the most recent issue. And it's a lovely book. It's also with full of yeah, 106 or 108 color plates. It's really a beautiful book, well-researched and totally available in open access. And I would recommend it to you. Um, it's a nice book looking at this history of this early phase of Shaivism, of this Atimargic, if you like, tradition, and mapping the ways in which the Skanda Purana that articulates a vision for this Pashupata tradition is engaged and worked with in the material culture of uh, three regions in West and Southwest uh, India uh, in around the sixth century, give or take a few centuries, depending on the material. So in any event, she there cites this passage from the Skanda Purana that I've given to you in this handout item number 11. And it's an interesting passage that again refers to these Pashupatas understanding their guru to be a manifested form of Shiva as a human. Uh, and you see that there are different yugas when he comes down. I guess I can read this passage, why not? I won't read the Sanskrit, it's there for you. And in the Krita Yuga, he became Bharabhuti in this country, bearing the Pinaka bow. And having borne the burden of the twice born, he threw that burden into the Narmada River. And the great Lord, out of compassion, with a desire for the liberation from birth of those who are mortal, became Bindimunda in the Treta age, cutting off their heads to effect their liberation. And in the Dvapara age, he became Ashadi and graced humanity with dance. In the same way, O Vyasa, Shiva himself is descended to earth in this country of Karohana, in every yuga, racing there the Brahmins whose hearts or minds, uh, manas is the word, are pure. And of course, we know that Kaundinya's commentary on the Pashupata Sutras is intended for Brahmins, although the tradition may have had a wider ambit than that outside of his interpretation of it. There are two other things from Cecil's book that now I'd like to follow up on. Uh, because of this initi uh, uh, initiative, um, this impulse from this kind of engagement uh, with Rob. Uh, and that is that Cecil notes in two places, unfortunately she didn't give the text of these passages. Um, she notes in two places, interesting passages that use the term Siddha. Uh, one is another place in the Skanda Purana, which I surely can look up. that uses the term to refer to Pashupata adepts as Siddhas. And these are ones that are said to have gained a union with Shiva, a Shiva yoga, a connection with Shiva in the city of Banaras or Varanasi. Uh, also, she mentioned an, an inscription from the West Coast and the Konkan Coast in India, in what is today currently the, within the city limits of Mumbai, a place called Padana Hill. There is an inscription there uh, in Brahmi script uh, that refers to a religious specialist who might be associated with the Pashupatas. He's a specialist named Musala, and he's referred to as a Siddha. I don't think we're dealing with the Siddha. This is interesting. I don't think we're dealing with the Avataraka Siddha that's captured Rob's attention because the Pashupatas don't have that non-dualist theology and suggestion of total union or identity with Shiva. So there's something else still going on here. Of course, we know Siddha just means accomplished someone who's accomplished. 
Uh, it's a term we also have, sadhya, siddha, you know, these kinds of things, sadhana. We have these kinds of terms in general ways with religious practice, also in philosophy. So tracing this figure of the incarnated, perfected Shiva as Siddha on earth takes a little bit of digging around. One kind of hard landmark we have for sure of where this term seems well to be being used in the way that matters today uh, in a kind of tantric sense is in the Raja Tarangani. Uh, you may well know this is a 12th century text, definitely written in Kashmir by someone named Kalhana. It's a really wonderful work. I took out my copy there. It's in three volumes. This is the Sanskrit volume, the third. Uh, not that you need it. Then there are also annotations and corrections and additions uh, made by several other scholars. Uh, but the Raja Tarangani, skillfully edited, it's twice been translated. This is Stein's edition, which has a uh, uh, Rich Salomon uh, from University of Washington and one other have made some corrections, have found additional manuscript sources. But it's a solid edition with a solid translation. And this is a 12th century work that goes and gives a history of Kashmir, the Kashmir Valley from the dawn of the Kali Yuga to the author's day. So it's really quite an interesting text. He attests in the beginning of the work to his historical sources. That's something that's very surprising for Sanskrit works. He talks about inscriptions and other kinds of sources, Quranic works he had and that kind of thing and how he accessed them. He doesn't tell us how he weighed them relative to one another, but clearly he was interested in doing what we could probably call historical work. It's been argued whether it's proper history or not. It doesn't really matter all that much for our purposes. What does matter is his use of vocabulary here in this passage I've quoted in item number 12, right? Where he talks about siddhas that were descended to earth, right? Uh, in the time of this king Avantim Varman, and they did it in order to grace the world of people, Loka Nam Anugrahaya. And it mentioned here is Bhattashri Kalata and others. And Bhattashri Kalata, we of course know as a Shaiva author in the tantric traditions. And so this is clear evidence of using this work in uh, using this language of Siddhas and uh, this language of you know, to cross down of a tree, to cross down together like this, at least in this time. I'm guessing that, I don't know, I don't wanna even say, but certainly by around the 10th century, people are talking this way. So much is also to be found in the earliest commentary on the famed Shiva Sutras, the Shiva Sutra Vimarshini of Chemaraja. And I've given you a passage in item number 13. I should say that, Ben Williams, when he came here, this is a famous passage, but Ben, when he came here the last week or the week before now, anyway, within the last 10 days, came here, he gave a lecture, but then he gave a Sanskrit reading for two hours with some of the graduate students and myself and a colleague as well. And he actually looked amongst other things at this passage here, uh, which is interesting and I thought should be brought to your attention if you're not aware of it already because of the content that's involved. But here we certainly have the language of Siddhas being used. The passage is controversial, however, for it attributes the authorship of the Shiva Sutras not to Vasugupta, as Bhattabhaskara had done, 
or did do, excuse me, but to a timeless treasure that is found by Vasugupta on the surface of a magically overturned rock. Shiva in this narrative gives him knowledge of that in a dream, which he then finds. He finds that rock and partakes of and shares the knowledge that's recorded there. In this narrative, he is said to have been purified in heart by yoginis and siddhas. This is a pairing, yogini, siddha, and so on. I'll highlight here. I hope I think you can see in the screen share. Siddhas and yoginis are purifying this person. This combination of siddha and yogini rather than siddha and Gandharva, siddha and deva, shis, and so on and so forth. This combination is much more uh, in the flavor we would expect of uh, uh, esotericism and Shaiva Tantra, and we do see it a lot. Um, uh, okay, uh, and uh, in, the, he, in this narrative, excuse me, uh, he uh, is said to have been purified in the heart by yoginis and siddhas, and the passage goes like this. I think it's worth reading out. Uh, how are we for time? I'm gonna be not too long, which is good, because no one likes to be talked about too long. Here in Kashmir, there was a certain venerable, venerable guru named Vasugupta, who was wholly devoted to Shiva at the, at the auspicious Mahadeva mountain. Due to the superior quality of his devotion to Shiva, which was ever opening as a result of the force of the descent of Shiva's power, he did not accept the teaching of siddhas such as Nagabodhi, who took up a position at a lower level of religion. He was intent on worship of Shiva, his heart having been purified by the true tradition of the various Shaiva yoginis and siddhas. At some point, moreover, Paramashiva graced him and rendered him of an inspired vision, which was awakened in a dream. This because he, Shiva, was intent on gracing him, Vasugupta, with the thought in mind that the secret tradition should not be interrupted in the world of living beings, dominated as it was by the perfume of dualistic philosophy. And he was indeed graced since he had said to him, here on this mountain, there is a secret teaching written on the surface of a great stone. Find it and then reveal it in the presence of those fit for such divine grace. And thus awakened he, Vasugupta, sought out that stone after turning it over by merely touching it with his hand, he saw as his dream confirmed. From that he obtained these Shiva Sutras, these Sutras about Shiva, which are a brief compendium of the secrets of Shiva. And having studied them properly, he revealed them in the presence of true disciples, such as Bhattashri Kalata, the person we had mentioned in the Raja Charangani, among others, just as he also made a digest of them with the Spandakaritas. I, the author of this passage, Kshemaraja in turn, have preferably, properly made clear the meaning of the sutras on cosmic vibration, the spanda, which had been obtained by way of that genealogy. This in my own spanda nirnaya. The Shiva sutras in turn, turn are made clear in this commentary. This is the beginning of his Vimarshini commentary on the Shiva sutras, explaining the source of this text, referring to this kind of discovery of a treasure, if you like, by overturning this stone and talking also uh, about this tradition of siddhas that communicates knowledge. Okay, uh, excuse me, just to check again the time. I think there's enough time left to do the third thing that I wanted to do. So first I wanted to look at this term siddha in its pre-tantric form to say we have these beings 
And I think somehow that idea of beings in a celestial world is being pulled into Shaivism and combined with this notion of the avatara, of course, the concept that we have with Krishna and the Mahabharata and being combined to say, we have teachers that come down from heaven, they're perfected, they're literally perfected and they can provide teachings to the world. So we looked a little bit at these pre-tantric places where this group of beings, Siddhas, are described as being in that land between earth and heaven. We looked at some passages that show cognizance of Siddhas as teachers of esotericism, as teachers of Shaiva Tantra, uh, including Rajataranganyi, where I think the reference is clear to that phenomenon. Very famous reference, nothing new there. Also, this famous passage that introduces Kshemaraja, student of Abhinavagupta, Kshemaraja's commentary on these Shiva Sutras. But the last thing I wanted to do, and I wrote about this, quite frankly, a long time ago. I gave a talk at Harvard in 2014. Um, that's when I met Ben Williams. Uh, and then it was published in the Festschrift for Alexis Sanderson under the title, uh, I should be able to give you the title of the article I wrote. Um, it'll come back to me in a moment. Uh, but it's in the Sanderson Festschrift, Innovation and Social Change in the Valley of Kashmir. That's the title of the article. And I want to come to the issue that I raised in that article, which is what having these siddhas can do theologically, if we can speak that way, for the tradition. So in certain Buddhist traditions, it's possible ever to find authority for new teachings by way of suggesting that such new teachings, new to humanity at least, were passed down from the Buddha who taught them himself in secret lineages. What therefore can theologically, if we can say that in that very loose way, can justify the emergence in history of what are apparently novel teachings and practices. New that is to the audiences being introduced to them for the first time. The argument I made in the Sanderson Festschrift is that these siddhas work that way in Shaivism and that they are meant to and explicitly so. So uh, I wanna show you these passages dealing with these Shaiva authors, Somananda, his immediate disciple Utpaladeva, and also a passage or two from Abhinavagupta and show what they do with this idea of something new coming into the world, justified by the fact that if God comes down to earth, from an unchanging transcendent form in Siddha Loka in the world of the Siddhas or in Shiva Loka in the abode of Shiva, what he's bringing is eternal and transcendent and yet enters into history in a particular moment in the form of a, his, a personage imagined as historical as say Bhatta Kalata was and therefore appears in that historical work, the Rajaturangani. So in that article, I first considered an idea argued by Sheldon Pollock, which I felt was really rich and useful, but somewhat overwrought and overly determined in claiming that Sanskrit texts could not allow for any dialectical interaction between theory and practice. On Pollock's view, theory was the preserve an elite of an elite who predetermined what could possibly be real and kept this from changing by claiming a timelessness to their textual and i.e. religious authority. The argument was the Vedas are authorless and timeless. And what they record is as true as the periodic table. 
It's not something discovered. It's not, so, sorry, it's not something created. It's something merely known by way of the vision of rishis to be the nature of reality. And since it was permanent and unchanging, it could neither be challenged nor changed if one took seriously their argument of the eternal nature of the sources offering that knowledge. One no more could change their views of these texts than one could change the nature of the periodic table, both being natural, permanent, simply existent, and not created. This is to say that the purportedly timeless and authorless works define the world in terms of what is and should and only could be, rather than articulating any contingent theory, uh, one that could be subject to revision on the basis of practice on the ground or new information or events. There could be no dialectical relationship between the theory offered in scripture and the practice that could be performed on the ground. Pollock says, for here, on a scale probably unparalleled in the pre-modern world, I'm quoting him, we find a thorough transformation adopting now Geertz's, Clifford Geertz's well-known dichotomy of models of human activity transformed into models for human activity, whereby texts that initially had shaped themselves to reality so as to make it graspable and by asserting the authority to shape reality to themselves. This is Pollock's view, which I'm arguing is too narrow. We can have new ideas in religion. And we can have new ideas in Shaivism by way of these siddhas. And we can have new ideas that are explicitly said to be new, as I'll show you in a moment. But the idea here uh, is Pollock's idea was, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish going through this and then wrap up my comments. He said that the, there were three consequences to his theory of Shastra and Prayoga, theory and practice. The creation of knowledge was exclusively a divine activity. Knowledge was by and large views, viewed as permanent and fixed in its dimensions. And third and finally, there could be no conception of progress of the forward movement from worse to better on the basis of innovations in practice. Now, he's right and he's wrong. There are two, he's right in that those arguments were put forward, but he's wrong in the sense that there were two dimensions of textual production in pre-modern South Asia and in Hinduism and quite frankly in Buddhism uh, that challenge this. The first is that there are canons of works that are open or at least remained open for a long time. You could have new sources proliferated or revealed at given times and allow for new scriptural facts to emerge on the ground. And the second fact closely related to that is the so-called ahistoricality, the term Pollock uses, the basis for the authorless and timeless transcendence that Pollock has shown furnished religious authority. This ahistoricality was conceived in various ways, including in the form of the Siddha personage. And because of that, you could, imagine a complex formation of religious authority whereby other scriptures could come in and they had technical exegetical ways of weighing them in relation to one another, claiming this is timeless teaching of Shiva, but, but the Sri Kalata is the one who brought it. So you could do both paradoxically at the same time. You have something like this going on in the tradition that I work on 
this pratyabhijnaya tradition, the term means the recognition, recognition that what you're experiencing is nothing but the dynamic changing activity of Shiva as consciousness. And I wanted to give these passages to show how this is mapped out in the tradition. First, we have Utpaladeva saying at the beginning of his famous text, the Ishra Pratibhigya Karikas, that somehow he's become a servant of Shiva, a servant of Maheshvara. And he wants to offer assistance to all people to facilitate recognition of Shiva in your own experience, that all that you know is Shiva in his, his dynamic form. And he explicitly, and Abhinavagupta too, referred to the authority of their teacher, the person I've been working on, Somananda, who in the beginning of his text, sorry, this is never very fun, um, says this here, asmadrupa samavishta svatmanatma nivarane shiva karatu nijaya namashaktyatatatmane. May Shiva who has penetrated or taken possession, this is a language of possession, has taken my form, possessed my form, my very body, by warding himself off by means of his own self. May Shiva pay homage to his all extensive self by means of his own power. All the dynamic functioning of consciousness on the individual level of the universe that we know is this movement, this sequence of Shiva's energies and powers. So, uh, there's an identification of the author with Shiva himself, also in the autobiographical passage that I stuck in this handout at the beginning. And then we have a claim that's made that's very interesting at the end of the Ishra Pratibhigya Karikas of Utpaladeva. He says that the path he's charting there, this philosophy that tells you how to come to know what really counts, how to know God, he says it's new. And this is really quite fascinating in the context of Indian tradition. It so often obscures the historical nature, the historical location of texts and authors. And so it's really a remarkable comment to have been made. I'm not the first to have noticed this, but I understand it, I think, in relation to the Siddha tradition. I'm certainly the first to have done that. So I just have two or three pages left in my talk. I'll read this little bit out here. Isabel Hattier of Paris was the first scholar explicitly to note the significance of this path, passage, Asia Margo Nava, Navaha, yeah? And she suggested that Utpaladeva refers to the novelty of the path he describes in his Karikas because he wishes to indicate that it does not authenticate, authenticate itself by any overt appeal to scripture. I think that's true. I also would propose, however, that one must understand a rather different, also understand another justification for Utpaladeva's description of the path as new. It's not merely the fact that one need not appeal to Shaiva scriptures to follow it. It's also, I suggest, that the primary sense of Utpaladeva's description of the path of new is that it's new to humanity. And this is uh, evinced in Somananda's autobiography that the Pratibhigya teachings were said to have been concealed by great stages at the beginning of the Kali age, preserved as they were by means of a secret lineage described therein, brought down to earth over these mind-born tri triambakas who were siddhas, 
and revealed subsequently for the benefit of those who could come to be initiated into its ways. I link that passage that I showed you at the beginning, and we come back to it and show it at the end of the talk. I link it to this idea of something being new because so does Abhinava Gupta. Now I give you a little gloss here on what the term new means in the commentaries that, uh, the commentary that Utpaladeva, his auto commentary that he writes on his own text. I give it to you in this footnote here, 32. He says, Somananda, whose very appearance is that of the great Lord Parameshvara in front of one's eyes. So Somananda, his teacher was God himself incarnate. We get the idea. But Abhinavagupta also talks about it being new and so on, and gives this comment here in handout item number 17, which maps out this lineage in a manner that highly reflects what we have in Somananda's so-called autobiography. Abhinavagupta and his Vivrati Vimarshini on this passage that says this is a new path, refers to this this sequence of deities, Sri Kantanata, to Durvasas, to Triambaka, Triambaka Aditya, which is exactly what we have in those parts in Somananda's autobiography. The point is whether we can line these two up or not, I think we can. Clearly, Abhinavagupta is thinking about novelty in terms of this idea of something crossing down through this Siddha tradition into the world. And that's the only point I want to make. The Pratibhigya presents the reader with a self-conscious understanding of their Shastra as divinely sanctioned. Yes, it's guaranteed by the identity of the authors in the, in the lineage as Siddhas. They are nothing other, no one other than Shiva himself. And yet while thus divinely sanctioned, the Shastras they disseminate, their texts, are intimately, inextricably tied to the biographies of individual agents. These are understood as people who lived in Kashmir on a particular date at a particular time. Utpaladeva, Somananda, Abhinavagupta. So this is something like the avatar theory we have with Krishna. God, yes, transcendent, yes, but in history in a particular place and time. So this concurrence of historicity and divine authority, finally, allows the Ishra Pratibhigya Karika, where I took this Navamarga passage for you, this new path passage for you, to claim to author, offer something that is both new and transcendent. So my conclusion, the Pratibhigya, through the doctrine of the Avataraka Siddha, thus achieves in its explicit and implicit theoretical formulations the apparently paradoxical aims of both offering something both in history, historically located, and new on the one hand, and yet transcendent on the other, the teachings being ultimately authored and authorized by Shiva himself, and thus held to be uncontained by any historical bounds, even if they come into history. The incarnated guru of Atirna presents in these traditions from time to time, we have it with Krishna in the Mahabharata. We have it here as well, allowing for a flexibility and dynamism in doctrine, such that new practices and ideas and a host of other concerns could make their way into an authoritatively presented reception in history 
and yet be transcendent and yet find their way historically into pre-modernity. So that's what I wanted to say to kind of go through this idea of this avatarika siddha and look at its prehistory in a certain way and think about how it might connect up. I hope we can think about how it might connect up with the things you're reading um, by having this kind of background. Um, okay, thank you very much. Thank you, John, for a really uh, fascinating talk. It really uh, sums up so many of the things that, that we need to know. I mean, really, really interesting stuff. I think there's been so little work done on innovation in Indian religions. So much emphasis on, on the sort of timelessness. And uh, really, I think this whole series of treasure seminar is, is aiming to kind of look at that. We've already had Natalie Gummer's wonderful talk on the Dharma Barnikas, and there is more to come. Mm -hmm.